Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 106. This is your host, Peter Renton, co-founder of Lendit and founder of Lend Academy. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Ranney. He is the president and founder of Clarity Services. Now, Clarity is an interesting company, and Tim has done something that few people have ever attempted, and that is to create a credit bureau from scratch. Now, it is not directly competing with the big three. His focus is on subprime consumers. So we talk about the story of how he was able to get a credit bureau off the ground from scratch. We also we talk about the product offerings. We also talk about the subprime consumer, who this person is. We also spend uh, quite a bit of time exploring fraud rings, what they are and how they can be prevented. And we also talk about the subprime consumer. What is the state of the subprime consumer today? And Tim provides uh, some warnings for, uh, for people who are now, you know, who are really underwriting loans today. It was a fascinating episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you. So why don't we get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. I know you've been, you, you started Clarity Services many years ago now, but can you give us, tell us um, a little bit about your, the arc of your career before that point? Well, I started, in, I started Clarity in the summer of 2008, but we'll back up before that. Going clear back into the 80s and 90s, I was in, I uh, ran a company, owned a company, and what we did was large database design. I guess we were doing big data before anybody called it big data. Right. Among other things, we did large database systems and distributed database systems for uh, Wall Street trading firms. This was back in the 80s and 90s. And we actually had to invent some of the technology to get those kinds of systems built back then. And by today's standards, they were pretty primitive. But uh, back then, they were really, they were really something. Mm-hmm. And in the late 90s, I was a senior executive at Network Solutions, and I ran a division of Network Solutions that was responsible for, uh, the division was referred to as Internet Engineering. And uh, the fun fact in that is, although this activity happened at Network Solutions before I was there, but the division that I managed, in fact, was the group of guys that did the original engineering for what was the original Internet put up by DARPA and the National Science Foundation. So contrary to what a lot of people believe and think, Al Gore did not invent the internet. It was (laughs) a bunch of guys that worked for me. (laughs) Right. Okay. Gladly uh, clear on that. (laughs) But but it wasn't me that invented it. It was a bunch of guys that worked for me, and they were there long before I was. Right. Right. Um, I got into the credit bureau, the, the subprime credit bureau business in 2005. I got involved with a payday loan credit bureau at the time that was kind of moving fast for a number of years in the subprime credit bureau space called CL Verify. And I was chief operating officer for CL Verify for several years. And they were, they were one of the significant players in the space during the mid 2000s. I left CL Verify in 2008 and uh, didn't leave CL Verify to start Clarity. I just left Seal Verify to kind of take a break. And while I was on my break, a number of people started approaching me and and essentially said, paid me, I guess, what I guess would be the ultimate compliment. They said that 
I understood uh, subprime and online credit and underwriting better than anybody in the industry, and they were suggesting that I start a bureau. So we started a new credit bureau from scratch in the summer of 2008 with uh, 2,000 feet of office space and a clean sheet of paper, and that is what has become Clarity Services today. Wow. So, so I mean, how do you start a credit bureau? I mean, how do you even begin? Because you've got a You've got to basically, it's a data business more than anything. So how, how did you get going? Well, you know, it's chicken and the egg. It's, uh, yeah, a credit bureau with no data. Nobody's going to buy a report. Right. And a credit bureau not selling any reports is not amassing data very fast. But we uh, started in the summer of 2008 and started building products and infrastructure and uh, establish some data partners. So there would be some data in the reports in the early days. And quite honestly, went out and uh, made the business and, uh, and analytics case to a handful of large players. What were the large players in the online space at the time? And they were impressed with what they saw and several of them took the leap of faith and came on with us early on. And those uh, handful of lenders that took the leap of faith early on essentially provided the data, and that was the data-critical mass that we needed to really get Clarity started. Mm-hmm. And right. and once they came on, the rest was kind of history. Okay. That's uh, that's great. So then, you know, you, you call yourself the Real-Time Credit Bureau. It's there on, on, on your homepage. And I guess, why don't you explain what Clarity does, what services you actually offer? Well, I'll, I'll distinguish us from the what get commonly referred to as the big three credit bureaus. And the big three are Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. And they've been around, they've been around for a million years. <laughs> maybe, maybe not a million years, but they've been around longer than we have. And, you know, they've been, they've been around, their, their systems, their architecture have been around a very long time. And if you go and uh, apply for a credit card, a car loan, a mortgage, whatever the case may be, they're going to sell the reports on that. And they capture data on predominantly prime consumers. But there's a big chunk of the population that isn't prime consumers. And there's lots and lots and lots of, of credit transactions that go on in the U.S. every day that don't make it to those three credit bureaus. Coupled with the fact that the nature of the prime credit business is that there is a lag between when the credit transactions occur and often when they make it onto the credit reports. And I know the three, the three big bureaus are working very hard to shorten that lag time. But let's, let's use an example. Let's say uh, I have an American Express card and that Amex card, for the sake of argument, my bill is due is payable on the 23rd or the 24th of the month every month. And let's say hypothetically this month I chose not to pay it. Well, you could pull my credit report on the 25th of the month and my Amex card would still show paid as agreed. You could check on the first of the following month. You could check on the 15th of the following month and and there's the distinct possibility that that my Amex card would still show that I'm paid in good standing. There's mm-hmm. there, there's time lags in the data that's going into the, that's going into the big three credit bureau systems, 
But we all know in the current age of high technology and high velocity of information, yeah, I mean, that lag might as well be 100 years for, for the impact that it has on the ability of a financial services organization or financial institution to make a good real-time decision on a, on a consumer because with, with real-time applications, real-time credit underwriting, real-time decisions, and real-time distribution of funds, you know, a consumer can apply for 10 loans in three minutes and get all of the loan proceeds in the following five minutes. And so those kinds of time lags in the transmission and the aggregation and the communication of credit status information just doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the Clarity system is designed to do everything we can to eliminate those time lags on the capture and the transmission of credit information, not just the posting of when a credit report is pulled on a consumer, but when the status changes on credit obligations are posted to the credit reports to eliminate as much of those lag times as possible. So when a, when a financial institution or when a lender needs a report on a consumer, they're getting the absolute most current up-to-date up to the minute, up to the second, snapshot of the consumer's credit status as is technologically possible. And that's one of the things that Clarity does, we think, better than anybody else, coupled with the fact that Clarity specializes in capturing all of the credit data that's out in the market space that the big three don't capture. So you could go to any one of the big, big bureaus and you might pull a credit report on a consumer and not get much current information or not get much of any information back. And you might come to Clarity and you might find a couple of installment loans or a payday loan or a car loan or a couple of rent to own transactions or a variety of other credit transactions that just don't get, that just don't ever make it to one of the traditional bureaus. So, so you go to the traditional bureaus, they don't have any information on the consumer. You come to Clarity, we've got all the information that doesn't get reported to the traditional bureaus. So Clarity is not a replacement, nor do we compete with the big three bureaus. We're the source of all data that the big three bureaus don't have. Okay, so why don't they have that data? Why, why don't they go and get, you know, get the same data that you've got? Well, in some cases, the, the bureaus are trying to do that. But in many cases, their, their systems maybe don't lend themselves very well to it. The the traditional bureaus, and again, and I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to sound expert on their operating and technology and architecture models, but their architecture, their, their historical architecture, was designed around a, a credit world where credit obligations, credit transactions were engaged in by consumers, and there were payments due on a monthly basis. You know, you get a you get a mortgage and you owe payment, you owe a mortgage payment monthly, you owe a car payment monthly, you owe a credit card, you get a monthly bill and you make a monthly payment on it. But in a lot of the, a lot of the uh, newer generation of credit, in a lot of cases, payments are often tied to the consumer's payroll cycle rather than monthly billing cycles. So if a consumer is paid every other week, twice a month, or every week, in some cases, a consumer may have a 
payment obligation that's weekly and to report those obligations to a credit bureau system that is designed to capture and track credit obligations on a monthly payment cycle, monthly reporting cycle, uh, there's an architectural disconnect that makes it more challenging for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So then can you explain how you were able to do it in, you said up to the minute, up to the second? I mean, are you basically working with all these lenders or different, not even lenders, but, you know, the people that, you know, you say that are providing data to you, are all these providers you know, doing this, they connected to you through an API and doing it in real time. Is that how it's, that, that must be the only way it's possible, right? Probably half of our, half of our customers are connected to us with real time APIs. And, and in those cases, a lender makes a payment, the payment gets posted to the, the lender's loan record. And at that moment, we're getting a status update that we post to our trade lines real time. And those trade that, that trade line update then is reflected in any credit report pulled from that moment on by any other lender that comes to clarity for a report. We have another group of lenders, probably 30 or 35 percent of our lenders, that quite honestly from a technology standpoint they're not capable of reporting real-time via an API, but they're doing what they what we would consider the next best step and that is they're reporting in a batch format on a nightly basis. And so we're not waiting monthly for those batches. We're getting nightly updates. Again, that still leaves a 24-hour lag, a 24-hour window of, in, of a reporting invisibility, but it's far better than a 30-day window of invisibility. Right. And, and then we, have, we do have a, a group of lenders that, that because of technology or other constraints, we're, we, are getting, we are getting monthly reporting from probably 15 or 20 percent of our customers okay okay so then I just want to talk a little bit about the consumers that you that you are reporting on you know these these are obviously part of the underbanked or unbanked I'm guessing a lot of these people are they immigrants I mean what what is the profile of the people that you have data on well it, it's interesting immigrants there's people assume there, there is a population, there is a non-social population in the U.S., a very large non-social population in the U.S., and, and very simply put, they are challenged in gaining access to the credit and financial systems in the U.S. There are no laws in the U.S. that mandate that a consumer has to have a social in order to get a bank account or in order to secure credit in the U.S. However, Banks and financial institutions have their regulations around what's referred to as KYC, know your customer, that require the, require the lenders and, and banks to definitively identify the consumer and establish, establish firm identity credentials on the consumer before they can establish credit. And in the U.S., lots and lots of the identity verification tools are social-based. And so in many cases, consumers without a social are more challenged in finding an institution who have systems in place to do the KYC verification without a social security number. Mm-hmm. And it becomes, it becomes even more challenging online. A, cons- a consumer has an easier time uh, walking into a financial institution with a storefront presence 
and establishing a variety of, of physical credentials to establish their identity versus without a social establishing a firm identity online without, you know, without a social. So it becomes more challenging. So we probably don't have as many of those non-social identities in the system as you might think. However, non-banked, it, it's funny because people throw out a lot of terms, subprime, near prime, deep subprime, unbanked, underbanked. But, but in many cases, they don't they throw those terms out and then they start talking about those populations without even defining the terms. And, and they assume that everybody else is just by osmosis has the same clear definition of those terms as they have. Right. So for example, an unbanked or an underbanked consumer is not necessarily a subprime consumer and not all subprime consumers are the same. And the definition of subprime is not, you can ask any three people in the industry and, and you get three different definitions of subprime. Our definition of subprime is FICO 600 or below, for example. Although I've heard people use FICO 660 as a subprime cutoff, as an example. And I've talked to some friends at Experian who thought that FICO 600 was deep subprime. But however, for our definition, FICO 600 is a subprime. That's where we put the stake in the ground. And in the online space, most of the subprime consumers are banked because most of the online credit transactions that we see uh, typically are tied to a bank account for purposes of funding and or collecting payments. So you see more subprime transactions, storefront or brick and mortar transactions involving unbanked or underbanked consumers mm -hmm. versus you see more subprime transactions involving banked consumers online. And that's a distinction in people when they talk about these populations, they tend to not parse them. Right. You also see you also see the population online being younger than the brick and mortar subprime population. You see the online population quite honestly having a lower average net monthly income, but a higher discretionary income than the storefront population. So there, there are a lot of things that you can actually distinguish between the various populations that are, that are using the various different types of credit and the various different credit channels that are available. And, and when you really start to break it down to subpopulations, it, it gets very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, when, when, for most people that we talk to, they tend to talk big picture and they tend to generalize. They tend to view, for example, a lot of people when they say subprime, what they're really talking about is low income consumers. And quite honestly, a lot of low income consumers, probably more than 50% of them, their score may be subprime, but that, but that low score bears no reflection upon their ability or willingness to pay a credit obligation. It is more an indication of the fact that they simply choose not to use credit. Right. right. And so, like I said, most people that talk about these, these topics that claim to be expert really don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, I want to move on to fraud because you, you gave a presentation at Lendit on fraud rings and uh, I went back and watched it again just a couple of days ago. 
And I'd like I'd like you to explain firstly what a fraud ring is, and and how what what you guys are doing to prevent you know, fraud happening. Okay, and there are several kinds of fraud, and and we'll talk about fraud rings first. And you watch the LifeLock commercials, mm-hmm. and and you you know you you start out you assume that there's a, a room full of people in Nigeria and the lights are turned down and you know, they're, they're busy trying to take advantage of everybody. Fraud rings. My guess is that most of them are more domestic based than they are foreign based. And they're not in most cases, my guess is they're not large groups of people. They're smaller groups of people. They're most of them are less sophisticated and in a fraud ring, by virtue of a, a ring, you, you, you might assume that it's lots of people, but it may be just be one person perpetrating the ring. And the ring comes, the, the definition of the ring comes about by virtue of the, the person or people using many, many permutations of the same set of identity elements to create multiple unique identity element com- combinations to try to get through the screening to get credit. So somebody, somebody's got a bunch of identity information and they go out with social number one using Tim Ranney at his home address. And then they go out with social number two using Tim Ranney at his home address. Then they go out with social number three using Tim Ranney at some other address. Then they go out with social number two using some other name at Tim Ranney's home address. And by virtue of the, 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 the chaining together commonality of, of discrete data elements spanning these multiple combined identities that are all somehow chained together by, by data elements connected with degrees of separation, you've got, you've got a fraud ring. Uh-huh. And that's in a very lay, lay terminology, that's what a fraud ring is. And that's what fraud ring identities are all about. And, and it's a matter of where the person behind the fraud ring gets the identity identities or the identity data elements that they use to construct synthetic identities, that is, these manufactured identities, and where they come out the door with them. And the manufactured identities that we see and the data elements they get come from lots of places. Again, they don't all come offshore. Uh, we've seen fraud rings where uh, there was a fraud ring out that came locally out of Florida here where somebody was stealing mail out of the mailbox at an RV trailer park, for example. Mm-hmm. Pretty unsophisticated, but it was, it was effective. And it was close enough to home that one day I got to looking at this and and we tracked this fraud ring, and I finally drove over, and it's like, oh, this is a trailer park. And it was really kind of an, of an interesting revelation. Uh, we saw fraud rings where it was somebody that worked at an assisted living facility, and they were, they were stealing information for, about the identities of the residents in this assisted living facilities. So it's all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, bank tellers at banks that are stealing it. It, the, the people that are sometimes perpetrating fraud rings are 
they're they're not necessarily uh, they're, they're they're criminals. They are certainly all criminals. But you know that a fraudster could be the person behind the teller at a counter at a counter in a bank, for all you know, and they could be using that position to gather the information. They're not all they're not all buying the information off the dark web, right. for example. Right. But what wherever they get the information, how they how they mash it together and what they try to go do with it is is all the same. And what a fraudster in the online space will tend to do is that they'll hit a lender and if they find a weakness in the fraud screening technology of a particular lender, they will hit that lender again and again and again until they can't hit that lender anymore, and then they will move on to another lender. It's not like they'll take a, it's not like they'll construct an identity, go to lender A, find that they can get a loan, and then go to lender B, C, D immediately. They'll go to lender A, they'll find that their fabricated identity worked, so they'll go back to lender A with another fabricated identity and another fabricated identity and another fabricated identity, and then they'll move on to lender B because it's easier that way. Right. right. So something in the industry that they that organizations like ours use, and there are a lot of organizations that do it, that's referred to as link analysis, and that is you're looking at each data element in the in the inbound application on an inbound application, and you're looking for where not only you're looking at all the data elements together to see if if all of these elements should fit together. And, and a simple example of that is I've got a consumer that's living in Fargo, North Dakota, but you know their phone number is a Boca Raton, Florida phone number. What sense does that make? Or they're using a bank account that's a, that only has branches in Los Angeles. What difference, what sense does that make? So you start by looking at the identities to say, do all of the components of the identity seem to make sense? Or they're applying for a $300 very high APR loan online, but they live in a neighborhood of million dollar houses. What sense does that make? So, so you evaluate the identity for those kinds of things first. And then you also look at the identity to say, have I seen anything bad at this address before? Have I seen anything have I seen this I, this phone number used on another identity before? And if I've seen that phone number on another identity, that other identity, the address of the of the other identity I saw, did I see anything bad go on at that address? That's referred to as link analysis, and you you kind of spider web the identity elements out to see if you can connect it to something else that we knew was fraudulent. And those are some of the methodologies that are used to try to trap and stop the fraud rings. And it isn't just, it often is just not a single data element to say, oh, I found fraud at that address. It's, it's sometime a, sometimes a combination of things. Oh, they bank at Bank of America. They always declare a net monthly income between 1900 and 1950 bucks, And they always live in this neighborhood. And so sometimes the link analysis gets pretty sophisticated but again, it does point, you can point to the fraud and you can trap a lot of them. Unfortunately, with fraud, you, unfortunately, you have to have enough occurrences of a fraudulent identity being assembled so you can detect the pattern. So once with a detectable pattern, then you can stop the rest of the occurrences that match the pattern. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So always a couple of them are always going to get through. Right, right. 
we're running out of time and I really wanted to get your take on the state of the subprime consumer because it's been written about extensively that, you know, the subprime auto challenges, it feels like there's been been quite a few stories about that in in recent weeks. And then there was a, a report out, Wall Street Journal reported out just last week that there are fewer people with FICO scores under 600 than ever before. And yes. those two those two things seem to be at odds. So I, I want to get your take on, on the state of the subprime consumer in the USA right now. Well, I'll admit first that I've not read the Wall Street Journal article. Now that you've referenced it, I will go back and take a read on that at some point. But the drop in sub-600 scores doesn't surprise me. And the reason it doesn't surprise me is that back in 2006, 7, 8, 9, when the economy imploded, people were out of work, everybody, the, the, the mortgage industry melted down, there were foreclosures, everything else. There were a ton of bankruptcies. There were a ton of foreclosures. There were a ton of derogatory events that just crushed the credit scores on lots and lots of consumers. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the timing of that, that was all about seven years ago. And literally all of those events seven years ago caused those credit scores to tank about seven years ago. And those scores, when they tanked, they caused those consumers to lose their ability to access new credit seven years ago. And I, I'm, I keep repeating seven years ago again and again because I've got to make my point here in a minute. Right. And so those consumers for the last seven years haven't been able to get any credit. And so over time, not being able to get new credit and no new credit means no new opportunity to default on new credit, and those credit scores have cleaned themselves up over time by virtue of the fact that that population of consumers has had no opportunity to get new credit and get into trouble with new credit and further damage their score. Seven years later, those foreclosures, those bankruptcies, those other defaults, those other really really derogatory events on their credit bureaus are now rolling off their credit bureaus and their scores are starting to rebound because of it. And so that it's a natural progression. And so you would expect the scores to rebound. And what I would expect to happen at the risk of sounding, I may sound cynical, but, but this is judging the data and watching, believing we understand the behavioral trends. Some of those consumers whose scores are starting to rebound are gonna turn around and go out back out and get credit and a percentage of those will then turn around and start to be challenged again in handling that credit. And a percentage of those scores that are gonna, that have rebounded are going to unrebound pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the derogatory events that crushed the credit scores seven years ago essentially insulated those consumers from their own negative credit score impacts for the last seven years. And now that that's kind of fading into the distance and their credit scores are rebounding, those consumers will now go get credit. So now what, what the lenders are gonna find out is that two years ago, a consumer with a 700 credit score was a pretty good risk. Going forward, now those lenders are gonna find that a consumer with a 700 credit score is more likely to default than a consumer two years ago that had a 700 credit score is likely to do. And it's gonna, it's gonna force a change in the underwriting strategies that some of those lenders 
uh, mm-hmm. have to make. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that, that makes sense. And I, I mean, uh, there's lots more to talk about here, but we're actually out of time. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Tim. Well, we appreciate the opportunity and always glad to talk to you. Okay. Thanks. See ya. Bye. I just want to go back to something that Tim said a little earlier, and that is about real-time credit decisions. You know, we live in a world where where there's an expectation of immediacy. People want to be approved immediately. Now, sure that there are there are companies that are doing that, but if you're getting an immediate approval, what really should happen is that should be immediately sent out to a credit bureau so that they so they now know that you have been approved for a loan, and others can now see that if they're going to pull information on you. And I, I applaud Tim's company for, for doing good work here and, and working towards that goal. And I know that other companies are doing the same thing. You know, I feel like this, this whole monthly cycle is, a, is left over from the paper statement days and paper tapes and, and having, uh, you know, sending a check through the mail. You know, that, those days are gone. And I, I, I look forward to the time when all uh, credit information is shared in an instantaneous fashion, I think then there will be less fraud and there, it will be, borrowers will be able to have better pricing and I think it will be a better world for everybody. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye.